this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. What we refer to as Area uh, 51, uh, basically it's a, it's a highly classified uh, location belonging to uh, the U.S. Air Force. The reason it's highly classified is because new weaponry are often tested in that, uh, in that location. And uh, when it comes to classification of secrets, weaponry, uh, weapon systems are some of the most uh, coveted secrets that nation states actually have. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff. And this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 142 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I just want to thank everyone for checking out the last episode, another world-famous Jeff Does Vegas trip report, outlining my most recent trip to Vegas back at the end of January 2023. I took you through my hotel stay at Planet Hollywood, my dining experiences at Ramsey's Kitchen and the Peppermill, my time in the Atomic Saloon at the Venetian, and much more. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 141, The January Trip Report, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A little over 85 miles northwest of the Las Vegas Strip, you'll find what might be the most famous classified military installation in the world. Officially, it's called Homey Airport, but you probably know it best as Area 51. If pop culture is to be believed, this secret base is where the U.S. government stores dead extraterrestrials in their spacecraft, and they work on advanced technology like weather control, time travel, and teleportation. But what really happens at Area 51? My guest for this episode of the podcast is here to shed a little light on the subject. Dr. Joseph Fitzanakis is Director of the Intelligence Operations Command Center and Program Manager of the Educational Partnership between Coastal Carolina University and the United States National Security Agency, better known as the NSA. He's also a professor of intelligence and security studies. He's written several books on the subjects of intelligence, espionage, and wiretapping. And he's a senior editor at intelnews.org, a website that goes in-depth on espionage, intelligence, and security issues. Dr. Fitzanakis was kind enough to join me to have a conversation about the official use for Area 51, as well as the site's history, and some of the site's past projects that have since been declassified. We also talked about the secret airline hiding in plain sight that ferries Area 51 workers to and from their jobs. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Joseph Fitzanakis. When I got the opportunity back in the previous century to do a PhD, uh, I thought I'd, I'd be to choose a topic that is interesting, that will keep me engaged for a number of years. Because with PhDs, you know, it's not so much how smart you are, it's whether you have the patience to 
see the project through. And so I took uh, on the topic of a very little research topic, and you'd be smart to choose a topic that has not been studied. Because the point of the PhD is that for a very brief time, you're like the world expert on a very minute topic that you choose to study. And I chose to take on the topic of, of uh, interception of communications, what is referred to in the common lingo as wiretapping. So I started with that. And then 9-11 happened, um, which basically uh, showed um, the United States that it didn't have enough qualified individuals to keep the country safe, uh, particularly from non-state actors. So uh, and that kind of forced um, you know, undergraduate uh, uh, colleges to consider the possibility of teaching intelligence and security studies uh, to undergraduate students, which before was never the case, really, very rarely the case, shall we say. And I was positioned well because of my research in wiretapping to start teaching in this field. And uh, that happened many, many years ago. And I've been doing that ever since. And so have you ever done any work in the intelligence and security field at all? Well, I could tell you that, Jeff, but then I have to kill you. And I really <laughs> like you. Um, no, so I, I would just say that right now my my interest in Intel is strictly uh, academic. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. Um, let's talk about the subject at hand, and that is Area 51. I think people are somewhat familiar with Area 51. They've probably heard the term through pop culture, movies, television, books, things like that. But let's take a little bit of a dive into Area 51 itself. Can you give me a little bit of background on Area 51? Uh, tell me a little bit about the history, um, where it's located, and what what is the purpose of Area 51? So what we refer to as Area uh, 51, uh, basically it's a, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a highly classified uh, location belonging to uh, the U.S. Air Force. The reason it's highly classified is because new weaponry are often tested in that, uh, in that location. And uh, when it comes to classification of secrets, um, you know, weaponry, uh, weapon systems are some of the most uh, coveted secrets that nation states actually have. So that it, it does make sense that um, that location, which, by the way, uh, is known in government documents as Homey Airport, is would be so classified. Um, it is uh, basically a, a small area within a larger unit, which is the Nevada Test and Training Range, and for those who kind of know the geography of the, uh, of the areas, is basically adjacent to the, uh, the Death Valley National Park, uh, which is along the California-Nevada border, right? Um, now, that location began to appear in government documents around, um, not by that name, in, during World War II, when America, of course, having... Um, suddenly entered that uh, global conflict that uh, was uh, forced to basically reinvent its intelligence and military uh, establishment from scratch, some would say. Um, so it began to appear during World War II documents and then subsequently kind of grew um, in size in the 1950s uh, during the sort of the beginning stages of the, uh, of the Cold War. There are a lot of conspiracy theories and myths floating around about um, 
what goes on at Area 51. Can you shed a little bit of light on maybe the reality of what is going on at that particular facility? Um, I mean, you have military projects and you have intelligence projects, and the two sometimes intersect and sometimes they they don't. Um, um, The earliest sort of intelligence usage of uh, Area 51 uh, can be traced in around uh, 1955 uh, by the Central Intelligence Agency. And uh, the reason that it, the agency used this site was to test the, the so-called U-2 uh, spy plane, right? So in the government documents, for those who have uh, read up on uh, the U-2 uh, plane, this is known as Project Aquatone. Um, it's basically the realization that the CIA had around that time that it was extremely difficult to spy on the Soviet Union using human agents uh, because the CIA is known for doing mostly that, what we call human intelligence, sending a living, breathing human being behind enemy lines to collect information, typically in a very difficult area to operate. Well, the USSR being a, a very close society, very heavily monitored and very highly surveilled. Um, it, it made it very difficult for the CIA to actually do what it normally does. And that was kind of like, you know, throwing in the towel and saying, look, we can't do that. Let's devise another way to find out what's happening inside or behind the Iron Curtain. Because you couldn't tell the president, sir, you know, we have no idea. Good luck. You know, best of luck to you. Uh, so the idea was to create essentially a spaceship a plane that was flying so high up in the air that the Soviets couldn't see it. Well, it turns out, of course, they could see it and they even shot one down. That's another story. And that highly classified project that some actually say was the most successful intelligence collection program in human history was basically tested at Area uh, 51. Uh, so um, if you, if that is kind of tip interesting example and an important example because essentially nearly every known government program that is associated that we know of right that is associated with area 51 relates in some way or another to airborne reconnaissance basically spying at a, a target from the air right um you know, uh, if you look at other sites, you know, so the U-2 plane, by the way, is still with us. Like we still use U-2 planes to uh, collect airborne uh, reconnaissance or in- intelligence. Um, but things like um, the Lockheed Martin plane that eventually became the Blackbird uh, that everybody, you know, knows. I'm sure I've heard of that at least uh, uh, before, uh, you know, was essentially um, developed in Area 51 or tested there. Um <clears throat> And they all go back to this number one problem the U.S. intelligence community faced back in the Cold War, which is that they had to focus on one country, the Soviet Union, that was seen as an existential threat to the United States. And it was such a difficult system in which to operate with human beings, with human assets, that you had to resort to technical platforms of intelligence collection. So essentially, all the cards the U.S. intelligence community had in terms of collecting information on its number one uh, target um, related to airborne reconnaissance, uh, mostly, uh, at at least at that part of the Cold War, 
uh, platforms, and many of them, if not most of them, were developed, tested at Area 51. That alone explains the secrecy behind that site. You mentioned the U-2 spy plane and the SR-71 Blackbird. Um, my understanding is that the F-117 stealth fighter was also tested out of Area 51 and Groom Lake in that area. And as well, some of the reading that I've done has talked about um, reverse engineering of Soviet aircraft and Soviet technology as well. Right. So, and I was going to say that another big part, big sort of reason for the existence of Area 51 is well, that's where you test <clears throat> what uh, the uh, intelligence community refers to as, um, well, that's where you, pr- when you um, carry out what the uh, United States intelligence community calls foreign technology evaluation. Basically, you know, capture technology belonging to the enemy or to an adversary or sometimes to allies, by the way. And then you can reverse engineer it to find out how it actually works. Uh, you know, extremely highly sensitive project. I mean, we're talking about uh, the highest classification you can imagine uh, because it relates to, um, you know, imagine being able to actually acquire an entire Soviet aircraft and have to secretly bring it to the United States uh, and test it, by the way, in ways in which, uh, especially nowadays, adversary satellites cannot pick up. You know, so you can imagine sort of logistical uh, need for security that is generated by that uh, challenge. As I was saying a little bit earlier, Area 51 is all over pop culture. It's It's been mentioned in TV shows and movies and comic books and video games. It's, it's everywhere. Um, I'm sure Area 51 is not the only top secret military installation in the United States performing classified work, but people are really, really fascinated with Area 51. Why do you think that is? Is it just simply the unknown and people are just making up their own stories? Why is it people are all over this particular base? I mean, I think the the main reason is very simple, right? It combines um, two things, right? Intelligence and spying with aliens. I mean, Come on, right? You, obviously, that in itself is uh, is very attra- attractive. Uh, you know, all all these conspiracy theories that relate to the sort of um, you know the storage, the the examination, or the sort of the reverse engineering of not just enemy aircraft, but also potentially, as some people claim, crashed um, extraterrestrial uh, aircraft. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are some conspiracy theorists that claim that there are meetings there between or sort of joint undertakings between uh, earthlings and, and extraterrestrial forces. Uh, and of course, um, there are all the conspiracy theorists. And that's another part of the, the sort of attraction to the site, which of, of um, ad- testing really advanced military technologies uh, that are currently seen as impossible to uh, to even uh, conceive things like you know, I don't know, like weather control, you know, or teleportation, or things of that uh, nature. You know, there's also another sort of attraction to this, which has to do with the probably existing, by the way, uh, underground tunnels. I mentioned before that it, it is very important to be able to conduct uh, experimentation without enemy satellite being able to pick up what you're doing, and that would definitely point to the existence of large underground facilities 
at Area 51, which, by the way, is not that rare for government. I mean, there's a lot. Take NORAD, for example, or take even the Pentagon that has a tremendous amount of underground facilities associated with it, even the Capitol uh, in Washington, D.C. So it's, that in itself is not that rare or bizarre, but it does, when you connect it to, you know, spying and aliens, it does create that kind of attraction. Um, one of my favorite uh, movies ever, um, uh, in, uh, which is uh, the 1977 uh, Spielberg film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? The entire movie is kind of based on this sort of like Area 51-like facility uh, where this sort of like, you know, uh, supposed uh, interaction between Earthlings and aliens uh, takes place. So it is part of our popular culture. It is human uh, uh, nature to be curious, especially about the things you're not supposed to be curious about. Uh, you know, take the, for, for those of us who come from that sort of um, <clears throat> Judeo-Christian tradition, the biblical story of the apple tree, uh, which, you know, in itself goes back a thousand years. There's not a thousand years. There's nothing particularly, you know, important about the apple. It's just like you're not supposed to have it. Well, then guess what? You, you want it because you're not supposed to have it. So I think that, um, you know, th- that combination of the history of it, the sort of uh, excitement of uh, alien life, I suppose the alien life, and you have the intel part of it that makes it I- I- impossible to resist in some ways. It's funny that you make that comparison of um, the whole idea of wanting what you can't have. It's kind of like when somebody puts a big red button on the wall with a sign that says, do not push this button. I want to push that button. <laughs> Who doesn't? That's the thing, right? Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the idea of um, people believing that they're seeing alien technology. And of course, that whole area surrounding Area 51 and that facility and the skies around Las Vegas and Southern Nevada are, are quite rife with stories of, of UFO spotting and people claim they're seeing alien ships and things like that. The government generally explains that away by saying, oh, no, you're not seeing alien technology. What you saw was the latest version of a, a stealth fighter or the latest version of, of some sort of uh, top secret spy aircraft. Yes. And of course, you know, um, I think there's a, a very understandable uh, hesitation, um, inability, or even unwillingness on behalf of the United States government to comment on these sightings, right? And the reason for that is it needs to ensure that he has what we refer to as plausible deniability, right? He needs to be able to say, yeah, you saw something where we can neither confirm or deny uh, that uh, this is associated with us and that we have anything to do with it. Well, then what's the, so what's the answer then? Uh, An average person can say, so that is an enemy aircraft. Could, Could that be a Soviet in those days or nowadays Russian or Chinese aircraft? Could that be an extraterrestrial aircraft? Yes or no? The government will say we cannot confirm or deny. And you can imagine again how that would generate a whole bunch of other conspiracy theories um, that I think are behind the sort of the, 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 the kind of early sightings, the early sort of mythology of the sightings of reconnaissance aircraft uh, with unconventional shape, right, or other kind of unconventional physical features that we uh, saw in those early days of the Cold War and, of course, gave this kind of rise to the whole um, you know, popular culture around UFOs, et cetera, 
which by the way, um, we also saw a, a huge jump uh, of these types of sightings and sort of uh, everything that comes with it in the 90s as well. I think um, uh, also a series like The X-Files that was uh, the thing to watch in the 1990s uh, largely was about that kind of uh, popular culture and it helped kind of regenerate interest. Right? I, think, I think the interest actually kind of died uh, in the 70s and 80s and then The X-Files came back and brought it back in the, in the forefront uh, of popular culture. It's kind of interesting how that happened. Based on the looks of some of the aircraft that have come out of Area 51, like the U-2 spy plane or the SR-71 Blackbird or the F-117 stealth fighter, you can certainly appreciate how somebody would look at that and, and see maybe see a silhouette of it from the ground and see it way up in the air or, or the light patterns or whatever and look at it and go, that doesn't look like any airplane I know exists. Um, there ain't no way that comes from Earth. That's got to be uh, alien technology. Yeah, and on top of that, Jeff, it's one thing, say, if you or me or, or I uh, see something when we're visiting Nevada and we're like, oh, we just saw a UFO. People are going to think we're kind of like out there. But like it doesn't, it's different if, say, a pilot sees one and then says, uh, he or she says, hey, I, I've recorded, here's a camera footage of this weird uh, uh, device or uh, flying object. I don't know what it is. The control tower doesn't know what it is. That makes it even more uh, sort of uh, prone to conspiracy theories because that's a pilot. That's the person you entrust with, like, say, flying, you know, 300 passengers from point A to point B. This person is not crazy. But here's the thing to, to, uh, to uh, think about, which is to consider, which is that these government uh, programs are so secretive that uh, one agency that is conducting this experimentation it cannot tell another agency like the Federal Aviation Administration that is happening, right? So therefore you have this disconnect because of the secrecy of the project that again generates even more of a uh, conspiracy uh, culture around the Area 51. After the break, Dr. Fitzanakis takes us inside the world of Janet, the not-so-secret secret airline that carries Area 51's employees to and from work on a daily basis. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. Any idea on the number of employees or the number of staff that that are working at Area 51 at any given time? Uh, well, with government agencies, uh, the number of personnel is one of the most important secrets. Because if you know how many people work there, you can imagine the size of the facility and all that kind of stuff. But I would think that uh, you know several thousand uh, would be a pretty wise, a pretty educated guess. All those workers at Area 51 have to get to and from the job somehow. And the base isn't really the type of place that you can commute to the way, say, you or I commute to work every day, just cruising in our cars, listening to our podcasts or our favorite tunes or whatever. It requires a specialized method of transport to get to and from work. And anybody who's flown into Las Vegas over the last several years has probably noticed some very interesting aircraft. Um, they are Boeing 737s. They are plain white. They've got a red stripe down the side. And uh, rumor has it, that they are part of what is referred to as Janet Airlines, which from my understanding is the way 
the people who work at Area 51 get to and from work. So uh, let's take a little bit of a dive into uh, Janet Airlines and begin by by asking the question, what is Janet Airlines? So what we refer to as Janet Airlines is essentially a, a sort of a, a small fleet of passenger uh, aircraft. Uh, they are actually operated by a private contractor that is uh, hired by the United States Air Force. Because remember, the whole site belongs to the U.S. Air Force, um, which means what? It means that all personnel and all uh, pilots who work for Janet Airlines uh, possess uh, top security clearances. So they've been cleared uh, to work uh, on this project without uh, revealing information to those who have no need to know about this. And what Janet Airlines does is it connects um, with Area 51 uh, most of what uh, the the personnel that need to work there. So most of what Janet Airlines does uh, is transport personnel uh, actually from a single airport, the Harry Reid International Airport in Las Vegas. Those of us who have been to Las Vegas, chances are that and we flew there, that's the airport that we use. Uh, But it has a separate uh, location that is associated with uh, Area 51, and that's the place where Janet Airlines uh, flights uh, uh, take off uh, to go to the Nevada National Security Site. And that is a broader uh, land, piece of land that includes uh, Area 51. It seems so weird to me that a a top-secret government program with such a high level of security would pick a public international airport as the the hub, the transportation hub for their employees. I mean, why not pick um, North Las Vegas Airport or why not operate out of Nellis Air Force Base, which isn't that far away? Is it, I mean, what would be the reasoning behind picking this? Would it just be a case of hiding it in plain sight so it, it just kind of, uh, pardon the pun, flies under the radar and nobody really thinks about it? Or, or I mean, I mean, what would be the reason for picking somewhere like Harry Reid International Airport where 42 million people fly in and out of every year? Um, I, there's probably several reasons. I think the most obvious one is that I would imagine, and this is just pure speculation on my end, that uh, the passengers that are being transported to and from uh, Area 51 are not necessarily military personnel. I mean, they could be civilians. Just because the site is military doesn't mean those who work there are military personnel. So, um, in fact, I would guess that given the the sort of the precise um, uh, research that happens or the particular research that happens in Area 51, most people who work there are actually civilians, uh, scientists and what have you. Um, either working for the Pentagon, so you can ha- you can be a civilian working for the Pentagon, uh, or working for an intelligence agency like the CIA, which is a civilian intelligence agency, not a military intelligence agency. So it wouldn't make sense to have these people enter, having to enter every single day a military base, and then fly out from there, and then come back to a military base and check out a military base. That's logistically very, very difficult. Just have them drive to a civilian airport, just like anybody else, and then just because you know that they're flying from there does not mean that they'll tell you what they do. 
because they all have top secret clearances. They've all been polygraphed. So the chance of you learning something about what they do is absolute zero. So I think that's the reason why you see that kind of contradiction, or at least it doesn't make sense when you look at this from a sort of a, a, a lay person's point of view, does it? Offhand, um, do you have any idea how many people uh, Janet Airlines carries on a daily basis? Yeah, I, I think I, it's not, that's probably one of the easiest questions you've asked me uh, today, uh, because there are actually uh, folks who kind of monitor the flights as hobbyists, you know, and you can actually tell by the size of the aircraft and how many flights come back, go back and forth every single day, how many people are transported, right? So I think the, the numbers that's floating out there is about 1,200, uh, which is probably a low estimate, I would think, but that's somewhat realistic, I would think. Now, my understanding is that Janet Airlines is just point A to point B, um, uh, Harry Reid International Airport to Area 51 and back. They don't operate to um, any other bases or facilities, do they? No, that's it. They have one job. They have one job, right? And it must be kind of boring, by the way, for the pilots uh, and the, the, uh, the personnel that work on the planes because they do one, they want one, uh, one flight, one stop, one airport, well, two airports, and that's it. So how does one go about getting hired on as flight crew with Janet Airlines? I'm assuming it's not like getting hired on with United or Delta or Southwest or, or any other uh, quote-unquote normal airline that, that operates anywhere in the world. It is not. First of all, you must be a U.S. citizen. Uh, second, you have to apply not through the Air Force, but through a company called AECOM, A-E-C-O-M, which is uh, actually the most wealthy company you've never heard of. Uh, ACOM is actually a Fortune 500 company. Uh, you must then, uh, for, of course, be selected to proceed to the next stage, which is an interview, a psychological evaluation, then a single scope background investigation, which, by the way, includes a polygraph examination. Uh, and then once you pass that, that's when you become eligible to, to obtain a top secret uh, security clearance, right? So, by the way, and that means, uh, you know, for those of us who are in the kind of business, that means that almost certainly, and given that this is a uh, Pentagon uh, contractor, your security investigation will be conducted by the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, which is a Pentagon uh, kind of uh, agency uh, that uh, is in charge of monitoring the backgrounds of applicants for uh, top secret and secret security positions. And, you know, these are, this is not particularly, you know, unusual. These are the kind of folks I talk to every day because of my students who get hired in the intelligence community. So they're, they're, they're you know, uh, they will be the ones that are doing the uh, back investigation for those who work in Janet Airlines. So, yeah, quite different then from applying for a, uh, a standard commercial airline where if you're applying to be a pilot, it's usually uh, must have X number of, of flying hours under your belt and a certain type of license. And if you're applying for um, to be a, a flight attendant or flight crew, um, the qualifications are must be able to spend long periods of time on your feet and uh, able to lift uh, X amount of pounds over your head and must have a passport. This this is very, very different. It looks like you've done your research on that, and I think that's about right. Uh, I would also think, by the way, that just because you work for Janet Airlines, you don't necessarily get paid a lot. It's probably pays the same as other 
such jobs, typical jobs of that nature. And you also have to go through the extra mile of going through a security check. And then, you know, your life belongs to the government following that. You can't even leave the country without notifying them. They have to know who you're going to get married to, if you're going to get married, all that kind of stuff. So the people who decide to do this for a living, they really have, I mean, they want to do this. You you don't do that lightly, uh, lightheartedly. You know, you definitely want to kind of your mind and your heart must be in it. And that's kind of typical of these types of jobs. Something people should keep in mind as well, if they happen to be in Las Vegas, um, you cannot go and visit the Janet Airlines terminal. I have seen video on YouTube of people who have tried to do that, and um, it has not worked out well for them. Good luck with that. Yeah, it's my understanding is it's also considered to be a a highly classified government installation and probably not a good idea for you to go and try and take photos of the gate or anybody working there or anybody going in and out of the Janet terminal. No, I, I would not recommend it. Uh, basically at least just like any other, uh, government site that has, um, a kind of a top secret, uh, activities associated with it. The same thing applies to, say, the National Security Agency in Fort George, Maine, Maryland. The same thing applies to the so-called FARM, which is the CIA training site. Uh, it's, it, in, in that respect, you know, the Area 51 and Janet Airlines are not that unusual, right? This is basically of a, of a larger complex of government um, uh, stop, top secret sites that are kind of required in this day and age to do kind of secret stuff that the government does. But I think it's, it's a whole, you know, it's, it's the location it's all the alien stuff and everything else associated with it that makes it so um, attractive to the popular consciousness out there. If people want to dive a little bit deeper into Area 51 and Janet Airlines, are there any resources you'd recommend, any books or any websites people should go and take a look at? Yeah, well, as an academic, I want to definitely caution you against um, the so-called YouTube researchers and all these other people who became so popular during the COVID era. Uh, you know, real research does not involve YouTube. It involves, uh, you know, uh, peer-reviewed uh, research that happens in uh, academia. Uh, and uh, with that in mind, uh, I want to uh, focus on one book in particular, Annie Jacobson, uh, you know, uh, she wrote, uh, she's well-known author, uh, a researcher uh, on uh, government uh, programs. And she has written the, a book, Area 51, which is sort of the, the standard uh, book on the topic. Uh, and it's based on fact, not on, uh, on conspiracy theories. And it's, it's a good one to start with. And then you'll find your way around the literature on that. Excellent stuff. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for taking time to jump on and uh, have a conversation on the podcast and uh, taking us uh, behind the curtain, so to speak, in the world of Area 51 and uh, and Janet Airlines. Thank you so much. Jeff, I appreciate your interest and I want to wish you uh, best of luck with your work. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. 
And don't forget to visit jeffdoesvegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.